Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Vish and Creative Control. I have for many years, I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Vish's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years, they're good friends, Uh, but the truth is he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up-and-coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with Uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity, so he's never met this person, and the same really warm uh, candor, as though he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat, no matter who he's talking to, and for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like, what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. All right, guys, we're going to bring up the headliner for tonight, the reason you're all here, the reason we're both here. Absolutely incredible. You've seen the Chris Gethard Show. You've followed his career for his entire life. I'm not going to hold it any longer. Doing all New Jersey jokes just for you. New Jersey, give me all the energy you got right now for the one, the only, Chris Get Chris Gethard is a very gifted and empathetic comedian based in the state of New Jersey. Well known as the host of his excellent, groundbreaking, anarchy-infused talk show, The Chris Gethard Show, and for his incredibly moving, Judd Apatow-produced HBO stand-up special, Career Suicide, Gethard currently hosts the compelling confessional call-in podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, 
which features him in phone conversation with strangers on the topic of their choosing, with the caveat that he cannot hang up on them no matter what. Chris and I connected recently for a nice conversation about the Canadian sense of humor and cultural regionalism, our connection to David Letterman, comedy, punk, and the Philadelphia songwriter and singer Adam and His Package, whose song, Lord, It's Hard to Be Happy When You're Not Using the Metric System, is playing in the background right now as I'm speaking to you. We talked about how podcasting is teaching all of us to listen more. A scoop about his next comedy special, future plans, and much, much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control and Massey Hall's concert film series live at MasseyHall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free, including performances by past podcast guests like Shad, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 575th episode of Creative Control, featuring the very funny and very nice Chris Gethard, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Chris. How's it going? It's really good. It's really good. It's a rainy day here in New Jersey, and I enjoy a good rainy day, so I'm, I'm in a happy place. That's nice. Rain is good. Uh, I'm uh, I'm fine, too. Thanks for asking. I don't know what's going on with my American... <laughs> I was going American, to. Yeah, I don't know. I have asked a few American guests lately, hey, how's it going? And they say, I'm fine. And I say, oh... Okay, I, I was. I, I tend to meander to get places. I don't know <laughs> if you ever listen to my podcast. There's a reason it's an hour long. I don't really. I, I'm sort of unable to get to anything of substance if we move quicker than that. So, apologize. Well, I, I, no, it's fine. It's fine. I moved from Ontario to Alberta, so I think I'm two hours behind you. Uh, I just fed my family some breakfast. Mm-hmm. Just woken up. I'm feeling okay. I'm a little. I feel it in my face. Like my face isn't quite awake. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. I mean, I didn't notice that in your face. Oh, now, thank you. I'll say something on my end, which is that you're calling out my American lack of politeness, which I think is fair. But <laughs> can I say? Because Canada's actually been so kind to me. I have a little bit of of a love affair with Canada as a comedian, both the, the history of it and my experiences there. But I also have found that the legendary Canadian politeness, when you spend enough time in Canada, you do start to sense the underside of that. How I was once on an Air Canada flight, and uh, in my overhead compartment, I had left my headphones. So uh-huh. I stood up before the flight was taxiing, and I went, I opened the thing, and one of the flight attendants walked over to me and kept going, Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And I was just going like, uh, you're welcome. I, I didn't really know what was going on. And then I realized she was yelling at me for standing, that, that this was past the rent. And I realized that, oh, in Canada, you can actually use the phrase thank you to mean like, hey, cut the shit, buddy. I don't think that's a thing we tend to do. But there is, within all politeness, there's entitlement and mm-hmm. and, and passive aggressiveness. I would agree. That's what it was. There was passive. Yeah. That's what it was. It, was the, it wasn't. It wasn't outright aggression, but there was a sense of her saying thank you, and then I realized, oh, she's 
this is actually meant to shame me. This is, and as someone who was raised Catholic, I do, I do have a very good detector of passive aggression. So, do you feel like because we're so polite and we think so highly of ourselves, we have a penchant for sarcasm? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. feel like we are, in your estimation, in your travels, would you say Canadians, maybe the British, are perhaps more sarcastic than Americans? Would you? How would you compare the sarcasm levels of of these? I say British and Canadian because we're very related. You know, they used to own us. Uh, yes. They still kind of, I feel like they Same still kind here. of do. They still, yeah, right. They used to own you too. That's right. You're, That's a, little, you're a little more tangled up in it still. Still, yeah. It's, they're on our money. It's confusing. But yeah, would you say we're more sarcastic than Americans? Are very blunt. Uh, mm-hmm. No time for sarcasm. We're just going to get cut right to the chase and tell you how well, we I, feel. America, you know, if you look at America, we can be honest at this point. America should be broken up like Europe, right? It's about six different countries. And I think it depends where you are. Like, I think the Midwest has a reputation for earnestness. And uh, I think the West Coast would have a little bit of a cliche for being like a little bit more laid back, philosophical, uh, hippie-ish maybe. I do think where I'm from in the Northeast, you know, you have some kind of the, you have the archetypes of like the Brooklyn ball buster, the Bostonians have that. So I think there is a little bit more of a, maybe a stereotype for, for, uh, some sarcasticness up in, up in the area where I'm from. And I, I have found that, you know, I'm from North Jersey, have spent a ton of time living in New York city. And there's definitely a little bit of, uh, you know, people will put the screws to you. With that stuff, sure, so, yeah, so spread out. Okay, so it's not necessarily a, it's not our Canadian American border that is separating the sarcasm and the humor. It's you're th- you're saying it's very region specific throughout the so. United States. That's fascinating. I mean, your country, from our observation, and I'll I'll speak on behalf of the rest of the world, uh, sure, does seem sure. pretty disconnected, more so than ever right now. Very. It's- Disparate. What it is, is your, wild. It is it wild. Is, it, yeah. yeah. I mean, in college, I was an American studies major, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's kind of a combination of history and literature and, and blends together into cultural studies. I'll be full disclosure and say the reason I signed up for it was that I found out it was the easiest major to attain at Rutgers University. There were actually some scams you could kind of pull to get through easier. And, um, well, what, 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 were, what were some of the scams? Sorry to interrupt. I'm just curious. What was uh, uh, what were some of the well, scams you could pull? I I was very depressed in college, as many young people I think fall into in that age, and I wanted to drop out. I realized in conversations with my parents that that would actually probably kill them, especially my father, who is a a hardworking man who who has been dedicated to education. He he. He got a PhD right before he retired, and that's he just kept hustling and kept working and educating himself. So, wow. I I had taken some American history classes because I'm a, I'm a history buff, and then I had found some American studies classes that were very interesting, really interesting topics and sort of stuff that didn't feel so academic, and I was enjoying those. And then I found out that these American history classes counted towards your American studies major. Hmm. But that did not remove them from the ability to count towards an American history minor. So I was able to take six classes and attain my minor, and all six classes also counted towards my major. Oh, 
So this freed up a ton of room in my college schedule for classes that I think, um, pardon my French, I'm not sure if we're allowed to, to curse on your it's, podcast. It's a podcast, you can curse. My schedule was loaded with bullshit. Yeah. Just by my senior year, I also took, uh, I would take one or two summer classes each year. And the goal there was to just remove as much workload from the fall and spring as I could. So I look back on that and that was one of the only smart choices I made in that era of my life was realizing I am, I am terrifically depressed to the point where I am in trouble. Yeah. And what I need to do is remove some of the, the tension and stress and, and work from this so that I can get through. And, uh, it was really, it was really, I think one of the only smart things that I've that I accomplished in my early 20s was that scam. I, that, it sounds like a scam, but it also sounds a bit pra- like pragmatic, a little practical. My son the other day, I have two children, and uh, the son, my son the other day at the dinner table was like trying to divvy up what he wanted to eat on his plate. And we were mm-hmm. like, well, you got to mm-hmm. eat all of that stuff. You can't just eat some of it. And I said, you know, when I was in school, Levon, my son's name's Levon. I didn't just call him Levon. That would be weird. I say, Levon, you know, when I was in university, what I did was I took all the classes I didn't really want to, like the classes I had to take, I got rid of them right away. First couple of years. I just took everything they made me take so that it was done. And then I kind of coasted for the rest of my degree. And I I don't even know what I was thinking. Uh, I'm not normally like that, but I wanted to get rid of all the stuff I didn't really want so that I could just enjoy the dessert. I guess is the to complete yes. the analogy. So is that maybe what you? Were, I, I appreciate that you were depressed, and I'm I'm glad you're on the other side of that mostly now, as far as I know. But uh, yes, I've wrangled it. You've wrangled Thank it. Yes. So is that maybe something going on with you too? Like in, if you think about it in life, do you try to get? Are you a procrastinator, or do you try to get rid of all this the onerous stuff you don't really want to really do? You just do it, so it's done, and then you move on with your life. Is that you? Yeah, I, I would say so historically. I mean, like everybody, I have stretches of procrastination and laziness, but I am also someone that when I, when I have, you know, when I have a to-do list of of the unenjoyable things, one of my favorite things is to plow through that, yeah. back to back to back to back, and it has also served me pretty well as a creative person because when I, I think when I when I decide I want to do something. Historically, I, I I get very stubborn, and for a mild-mannered guy, I think internally I will just decide, no, I'm going to make a thing happen, and if it takes years to make it happen, I will. And one of the things I've come to learn in that process is that if if you can dot every I and cross every T yourself and just have everything as airtight on your end as you can then it allows you to frame conversations a lot more on your own terms. Um, mm. If you have an idea and and you find yourself with an opportunity to to present it to a person who might be able to fund it or make it happen, if it's hazy, that's on you. If it's if you're able to say, "Here's a firm outline for it," that's you know a little bit more undeniable. Yeah. If you're able to say, "Here's the actual script that I love." even more undeniable and for for me historically 
I think a lot of my best ideas are things that people would say were unlikely. And what I did over and over again with my favorite stuff I've made is I just went and made it and kind of chipped away at it and learned what it should be, what it wanted to be. So by the time people actually got serious and realized, oh, this guy took this unlikely thing, but it has a fan base. It, it's managing to catch you a following. I've been very lucky because it's always been my attitude, the one you described, some version of it. And, and what's happened to me is that I will, I, will, I will often make things that even when people have given me money to give them, it's almost begrudgingly. Like they're still a little bit confused <laughs> by the product, but they'll go, people clearly are liking it. And, and I think that was true for, you know, I think the big three things in my career have been my, my, my podcast, uh, my HBO special, and my old TV show. And all three of them have that in common where people uh, said no to it many times and or told me it was not a good idea to dedicate my time to it. And those are the three things that I think I've enjoyed the most and that people responded to the most. And anything I've done uh, that was more traditional generally has not gone yeah. anywhere. So I don't, I don't know how exactly I got into that. It was some combination of hard work and luck, but yeah, I, I, I've managed to get there. Yeah. It does sound like your, um, your parents had a work ethic, uh, that just in terms of genealogy, like this must've been passed on to you. But I also feel like, like me, and forgive me if this is wrong, but I feel like, like, like me, your spirit animal, if you will, is probably David Letterman. Is that fair? Like, is uh, he... Obsessed. It's it's some combination of of David Letterman and Andy Kaufman, and as a Northeasterner, I know that there's historically been some moral objections there that I 100 agree with. Howard Stern is in the mix. Just me too. A, a lot of a lot of people who did some version of comedy that um, very intentionally stepped outside of what had been happening up until that point in history. Well, it's funny, like, uh, the Stern thing is funny to me because as a Canadian, uh, growing up here, I didn't, we didn't have the Howard Stern show. There was a mm -hmm. point in the, near the turn of this century where a Toronto rock station got the licensing to make the Howard Stern morning show part of their programming, but that's the first we ever heard it. But I knew Howard so well from his talk show appearances that when Private Parts, his book came out, uh, I went to the library and I got it and I read the whole thing in a day. Uh, I will always remember that. Uh, did you read that book? I read the book. <laughs> Not only did I see the movie, <laughs> but I have such a strange memory from my childhood of being at my friend Jeremy's house. Also with, I believe it was my friend Sam. And the movie theater in our town was playing private parts and we were I think in 8th or ninth grade and obviously our parents were not going to let us go see private parts and what we did was Jeremy was like let's just ride bikes there and it was far it was far from where he lived to the movie theater and, and we said do you have three bikes and he said no I have I have one regular bike and a tandem bike so I actually read a ta I rode a tandem bike <laughs> 
as an eighth grader <laughs> to go see. That's how much I needed to see Howard yeah. Stern's movie that knowing this is dangerous to cross major roads, just major roads in my town on a tandem bike. I'd never re- rode a tandem bike before. And also really knew from the very start, well, if anyone from school sees me, if someone happens to be driving by with their mom and dad, I, I will be mocked forever for riding. It was a bright yellow tandem bike. <laughs> and we didn't even have a lock for it. We just left it leaning up against the movie theater wall that we had to see that movie. Had to. So you said danger there. And my attraction to Letterman, Stern, SNL at one point, uh, mm-hmm. punk, danger. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a challenge to these suits that you were alluding to who gave you money but don't understand why the thing you make uh, or want to make is resonating. And I find that disconnect always very interesting in culture. It always seems to exist that there are these benefactors or at least money people, and they say, I don't get it. You just do it, I guess. Or they say, Mm -hmm. you can't do that. I give you the money. And they get kind of that creative oversight impulse, which then people like Letterman and Howard Stern and 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 the punks I love mock openly. So all of that is within you a little bit. Like when I think of your talk show, which was wonderful. I loved your talk show. I, Thank uh, I you. tried to watch it as much as I could and the anarchy of it appealed to me and I was like, "Oh, this this fellow and I are aligned." Like I I feel like I Thank I, you so I felt much. like I, I I knew where you were coming from, but that push within you or rather that impulse within you to push people. Uh and and <laughs> obviously you wouldn't be able to succeed if you didn't have fans and and you know that was the the thing that turned these money people on to working with you but what's going on there in terms of your impulse to to go towards the danger not take the safe route and do something that would please those people so they keep giving you the money like almost everything you've done uh maybe money the money part might be in danger (laughs) well it's really funny because you brought up punk and also, I want to thank you for your kind words. And I want to say one thing that pleased me to no end is as when our show was on public access television and it started to spread, I'll never forget, you know, we started getting calls from Manhattan, people watching on public access. And then it was like, oh, people from New Jersey and Connecticut are calling. They're finding on the Internet. And I remember when we started getting fans in Canada yeah. and it meant a lot to me. And, and I have found as someone who's making jokes about Canada before, I, I, I will say Canadian fans understood what I was going for much more across the board than America. There there were, you know, Americans like to, I've never totally understood the American impulse of, I need to express anger at the things I don't like. There's a lot of options. Be nice about the things you do like. And Americans would let me know. People either loved it and a lot of people hated on it. But Canadian fans, I've realized I, I, they got the Gethard show the place where career suicide really caught momentum was at uh, JFL in Toronto. Oh yeah. The comedy bar in Montreal has been so kind to me. And I don't know if it's just maybe that Canadians are a little classier about, well, we'll express like for the things we like and we don't need to just spit vitriol the things we don't. But I, I, I realized, Oh, Canadian comedy fans have had my back. So I thank you for expressing that. And, and it, 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 it was, it was a warm feeling thing for me. And yeah. 
as to your question about you know balancing that money and stuff, you brought up punk, which was huge for me, and then even even some of your past guests, like I saw Cool Keith was someone you interviewed. Yeah. He was someone who I loved, yeah. loved, loved, and even within the world of punk, there were some bands that were just so strange that I loved. There was a band called Servotron in the '90s who dressed up as robots. Um, there was a guy from Philly who I, I think a lot of people have heard of named Adam and his package. Adam and his package he, played my house in Guelph. Uh, there you go. And uh, there you in, go. in like 1998 or 99. And then I saw him in Philly when I was road managing a band 20 years ago this month. Actually, we went on tour and wow. it's a bit of a big deal for my friends and I because we had never done that. Kid, a small Canadian band, three week tour of the States. And we met Sufjan Stevens and I jammed with Ryan Adams which I know is uh, not good That's now wild. like a lot of uh, we wild. found found Big Pink where the band and Bob Dylan yeah we just like it was an adventure it was like a it, yeah. it was really really fun but yeah Adam did not remember my the house in Guelph but he <laughs> for those who don't know I and I still it's one of my favorite things ever he Adam and uh, Adam from Adam and his package had a song called Sting Cannot Possibly Be the Same Guy Who Was in the Police. And that is yes. my one of my favorite things of all time. And if I, if I remember <laughs> right, one of the even the funniest things about that is if I remember right, it's an instrumental. Yeah, that's right. Right? I don't. So he doesn't, even, he doesn't even explain it lyrically. He had a lot of songs that very bluntly explained why he thought the metric system was better yes. than the, the one we use in America. Uh, songs about why he didn't understand why hockey goalies didn't all weigh uh, a thousand, a thousand. Why you didn't just get the most morbidly obese people to be a goalie because they take up the most of the goal. He was re- and his. I think his most famous song is Punk Rock Academy, a song yeah. about all the punks and underdogs and weirdos should team up and form their own high school. And then my one of my favorite lines is it, and it we will we will appoint a token jock and we will kick his token ass. <laughs> there will never ever be a physical education class. Um, now, point being, it's it's not a coincidence that in answering your question about my relationship between creativity that trends strange and kind of having to just throw hail mary passes and hope money comes from them, my answer immediately goes to music instead of comedy because. I didn't throw the house show, but I saw Adam at a house show. I remember seeing Adam at a VFW hall. One of the things I'm most proud of with the Chris Gethard show, you know, a lot of the fans, when we went to cable, they said the show lost a lot of its heart. They're not wrong. But the thing that I think they don't understand is, A, there's a few things I'm really proud of. There were about 70 people who worked on the show full-time. That swelled to over 100 on show days with the part-time gigs. I was supporting a micro-economy of people who... So many of them were getting their first jobs. There were all these think pieces about how there were almost no female writers in in talk show writers' rooms and no female presence on the air. And I I would sit there and just bite my tongue because my show had multiple female co-hosts and female writers. There was a, a writer on our show who, before we ever worked together, he was in danger of being deported from the States. I wrote a letter saying, I am someone who's in a position to hire people from time to time. And uh, if I ever have a chance to hire this person, I will. I did. Second job ever was with me. Um, Point being, punk teaches you to prioritize ethics and integrity over money anyway. So when the money came in, to me, my instinct, and I'm no hero. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back too hard. I'm just, I'm answering your question, which is money 
yes, it provides me breathing room and yes, it provides me some financial stability I haven't had before. It also provides an opportunity for me to continue to do things in the way I view as the right way. And that to me just goes back to the punk artists who played house shows because the real venues, quote unquote, didn't want to deal with them. That goes back to Ian MacKay and you do all ages shows. Fugazi, what was it, five or ten bucks that they never charged more and they were a huge was, indie band. It was used to be six bucks was the kind of line. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so for me when money came into it, it was an opportunity to do things the right way. So it, it broke my heart that the pressure from networks often did mean that you could feel a tightness to the creativity that had not existed before. But one thing that I'm, I'm you know, there there is some sense of victory in that. Actually, a lot of the episodes people now point to as their favorites are ones that were from the cable years, not the public access. I don't even know if people realize that they're doing that. They'll go, oh, I loved that dumpster episode. I'm like, well, that was on cable. That wasn't on the public access days. And then... Just another small thing I'll add that's that's a little bit of an aside because we looped it to music. One of the things I'm most proud of with the cable show is they fought us so hard on the idea of having musical guests. Our public access around the musical guests, not only were a huge part of it, they helped us survive. Comedy fans actually kind of bailed on the show in the early days and we were putting bands on that were underground and their fans kept there for watching and then yeah. sticking with the show. And when we got to cable and we could finally offer people money to play, I got Adam and his package on TV and I think it was 2018. He hadn't played yeah. a show in years. I got the ergs to reunite. I forget if they had played one reunion show or if they reunited on my show. That's one of the most important bands on my life. Now, Mikey was our house bench drummer, so it's a little <laughs> bit easier for us. But they did. They were pretty intent at that point of not playing. They played. I got Cool Keith on TV. I'm sure Cool Keith has been on TV a number of times, but I do think it's fair to say, and I have the utmost respect for Keith, a lot of love for him, and we've developed, you know, not a, not a huge personal relationship, but we will message each other from time to time. Um, to bring him in front of a comedy audience that maybe wasn't around during the Dr. Octagon heyday, the Black Elvis heyday, to bring him in front of an audience of um, kids that were millennials, that I wouldn't, I would say are probably more punk or indie rock kids than hip hop guys, and say, hey, no, like, he, this is a guy you'll love. Look into his past. He did things the way we do it in a totally different scene. Yeah. You could probably argue that he's one of a handful of hip hop's true punk weirdos. Absolutely. If you want to think about what punk means non musically. Yeah made me really proud to go, hey, like I, I saw you interviewed Mets. We put them on our show, and, yeah. and they don't need our help, but that, that, that ability to link up with those people. We had Tommy Stinson play with Bash of Pop. Like, I was able he to- He was on my show, some, too. He was on my show, too, Tommy Stinson. It's awesome. So you and I think I have, <laughs> we have a similar mentality, though, yeah. of like, your heroes kind of teach you the right way to do things, and then when you get a chance to go back and and and, and repay that favor, A- to them by honoring them and B by trying to shout to the hills as loud as they did. I realized pretty early on in the Gethard show of like, this show's never going to be perfect. A lot more misses than hits, but that allowed us to get to some hits that people that blew people's minds. But I did right away think about, I'm like, well, there's a lot of young people that watch this high school kids, college kids. And one of the, one of the best things I can do is shout to the hills about 
don't back down on your own creative impulses. Do not let people tell you no. It might fall on its face, but go make it. It has a right to exist. And I really, I realized at a certain point, once career suicide got no attention in the awards, I'm like, that's the closest thing I'll ever make that might get nominated for an Emmy. It's never going to happen for me. So now the best I can do is pray that some kid who was 15 when they were watching my show, they get an Emmy speech someday and maybe they'll go. There was also this public access show that I liked. Thank you to the yeah. Thank you to those guys. That's the best I can do is hope that the next generation does it way better than I did. And yeah. that, like you know, that's punk rock. Yeah, that's um, that's what punk does for you, you do it for each other. Yeah, as I get older, I start to see that about the work that I do. It's that ideally it's going to uh, inspire people to do do it better than I'm doing it, uh, which isn't that hard. But there's a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of younger people that are like, how do you do this? Like, how how is it that you're able to do this? And I say, you know, this is just the way I've been wired for many years. So I I keep going. Um, you and we had like so sorry to interrupt, and I, I'm talking too much. But this topic has me so excited. But I'm like, I look at people. I don't know your age, but I get the sense we're probably, if you were seeing Adam and his, hosting Adam and his package shows, we're in the same age range. I'll be 43 in December. On December 15th, if you want to send me something. But yeah, that's when I'll be 43. Please. Pass along your address. (laughs) Um, I just turned 40. So yeah, like. Happy birthday. I bet. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was in May. It was six months ago, but thank you. And, uh, but I'm just thinking as you say that about like, we're both saying like, these younger kids ask, "How do you do it?" And then I'm, what they don't know is like we had fanzines. Yeah, we had like handmade magazines. Yeah. We had seven inches that people that literally never went into stores. You could only buy them from the artist. The artist would play a show, walk over to a table, sell you the yeah. thing, and that was the only place you were going to get it. And now with SoundCloud and Bandcamp and, and everything, it's like, oh, they don't need that anymore. And they've never seen a fanzine. So it's the spirit of those things that shows up in the stuff people like you and I are still making that hopefully, you know, I'm progressively understanding less of the internet, but I'm like, oh, but they're figuring out. They're figuring out how this technology I don't understand yeah. embraces what I had. And they might not even know that that's what was in the DNA that I was trying to be the bridge to. Yeah. So, sorry, I'm yelling and no, screaming. No, 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 no. Don't apologize. We're, it's a conversation. It's, You're allowed to talk. Why wouldn't you be allowed to talk? As soon as you, <laughs> si- as soon as you said you hosted an Adam in his package house show, I was like, okay, we we think the same way on Yeah, yeah. Parts. He played uh, Guelph, uh, I think, a couple of times. And yeah, we had him through. Yeah. I, I want to home in on your perspective on the psychology of change because you said a few things that resonated with me. One, as Fugazi got bigger and bigger and more popular, nothing changed about how they fundamentally did things. Uh, Ian, in particular, has a penchant for consistency that I value. Um, Six dollars. Doesn't matter. We used to play... uh, Fugazi also played Guelph before my time, but one of their first Canadian shows was in this tiny little space... Uh, because a friend of mine, Aaron Riches, wrote or called Ian on the phone and said, hey, if you ever want to bring your band, and he came. And and as that band got bigger and bigger, nothing changed about the way they did things. All that stuff was external to them. And you said something about how your fan base will say, ah, I miss the heart and soul of the public access show. I preferred that to the cable show. 
That's a change thing. You also said Americans versus Canadians. Americans tend to rage at being challenged, whereas Canadians seem to be more accepting. Are we getting at a thing of comfort in your own skin? Um, comfort, like yes. just, just like we last. I, I, yes. What's going on is we're speaking with the Black Lives Matter movement and also people's reactions to this pandemic. All I'm seeing is pain, and like the hatred and rage Comes is all pain. Of change, uh, or, or regarding uh, resistance to change, and the thing that is getting everything's different. People are different, and and that's what I'm seeing as a holistic sort of perspective on what's happening to all of us right now. What do you make of that? I'm sorry, that was a bit of a tangential. <laughs> I'm just... No, it's a question I think about a lot on a, on a personal level and a, a cultural level because people rejected Bernie Sanders. And and I thought mm-hmm. that was I'm sorry to talk about American stuff with you, but you're American. But people reject consistency, like the, <laughs> the the resistance of consistency as some sort of challenge to liberty or freedom is where I'm coming from here a little bit. Because to to me, yeah. if a guy has voted sort of the same way for forty or fifty years, isn't that more reliable than a flip flopping person or someone who's like, well, I liked Chris's show when it was on public access. But then when he had a little bit more of a budget or what have you, it started to look a little better. Then I started to reject it. Like we both probably come from punk orthodoxy too, which I'm happy kind of melted mm-hmm. away because I was always into everything. Like I was very yeah. open-eared and, and I would, when, as a drummer, I would try to, the Tribe Called Quest record or the DJ Shadow record had just as much of an influence on me in a punk rock band than the punk rock bands I was seeing. So... Anyway, yeah. sorry, I don't mean to go off here. You, you've ran. No, I'm, I mean, you get that's jawbreaker, yeah. right? You're not punk. And I'm yeah. telling everyone it was this purity, this holier than thou stuff that I think still infects. It's really actually come to be more prominent in politics than music these days. Like, my wife, who is much more of a punk than I am, who's been in bands and toured, she is pointed out to me there was this real era of here's exactly what punk is and if it sounds different at all and now I feel like you see like Laura Stevenson and Waxahachie and Mitski though to me uh, there's a lot of performers who in in those cases are female singing ballads songs that are longer than five minutes songs that in, include elements of folk and and I would say, like, even, you know, jazz, where you're like, that. when we were young, that would never be considered punk. And they're considered some of the most punk people on earth right now. It's a beautiful thing. I haven't really spoken publicly about American politics too much. I think part of it is because, my well, my biggest platform right now is the Beautiful Anonymous podcast. Yeah. And almost 100,000 people listen to it each week. And there's times where I have said, enough is enough. I have to. Black Lives Matter. Um I go really nuts after every time there's like a mass shooting because you immediately notice the partisanship comes in. And, and as someone who's had the problems I have, you track these these shootings in America and, and so quickly after many of them, you will you will read people going in news and, and we found out this person was on Prozac. We found out that... And it's, it's like, oh, don't demonize the fact that they've been... You know who's one of the saddest people right now then is that person shrink. That's one of because the, there, that person now understands that that person that that this shooter went over a tipping point of mental instability that they couldn't halt, and 
then you look into it and very often if you do a deep enough search this dialogue about mental health being at the root of school shootings comes out on press releases where when you read the names of the people putting them out it's very clearly they are gun rights organ it's the NRA so uh, I, these are the things I do go nuts about but I find that a lot of my listeners on Beautiful Anonymous will very often not very often uh, more and more lately there's people who are appreciating political mobilization that's good but I do feel like as someone who's hosting it and the whole premise of that show is you call up and I'm not going to judge you I often feel like I do have to remain impartial. And then sometimes I feel guilty about that. And there's times I've ranted and raved about about George Floyd and, and, and certain things where I just go, I can't. I can't hold back my opinions. But I think about the news I grew up with. In the American news, there used to be actual laws that said you had to be fair and balanced. That wasn't just a catchphrase yeah. for, for a network that I think is the least fair and balanced of all. Those restrictions were removed. After 9-11... There were multiple news stations that were 24 hours and have a constant crawl at the bottom. If you look at how often American news stations have the word breaking news at the bottom of their of their uh, screen and then there's uh, headlines rolling, none of those headlines are breaking news. No, there was one it's on just, MSNBC the other day that said, uh, I was watching it, and it said, breaking news, the Reverend Al Sharpton releases new book. And it was an interview with Al Sharpton, which was, that's great. But I was like, that's not... That's not really breaking it's news. Not, it's not. And, and again, I, I, it, it really changed at 9-11 with that. If, at the end of the day, if you have 24 hours of content to fill, I refuse to believe that 24 hours can be filled with impartial news. Well, I mean. So what you need to do then yeah. is replace it with entertainment or opinion and, and all that stuff starts to take over. And that breaking news bullshit at the bottom of the screen is all about getting people to go, wait, what? And it's to give them that adrenaline rush of they're missing something that they need to know about or that they should be scared of or they need to react to. And it's it's led to, like you said, this hate and this fear. And I've had this... Uh, we're talking about... Uh, I don't even know if it's been a week since they revealed a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan yeah. by a bunch of militia guys. And you sit here and you go, well, it, are we legitimately entering a point as Americans where we need to start coming up with a strategy to split this nation up peacefully? Because if not... People are going to get killed. We joke the joke about there being, uh, you know, rumblings of civil. We've talked about civil unrest a lot over the last few months, uh, last year in particular. But uh, we are entering civil war territory now. When you have a cohort of white dudes in Michigan forming a domestic terrorist organization, I wouldn't even call them a militia at this point, Chris. Uh, that's bad, and uh, and then when you have your leader not really admonishing them, but attacking the potential victim. I mean, I don't really. It happens on the show organically. I think it must not be organically. I'm the host of the show. I like to talk about politics, <laughs> uh, so uh, and my understanding of them and mani media manipulation. I mean, I talked about personal pain being maybe one of the. Uh, reasons why people are lashing out the way they are. But the other, you said fair and balanced, uh, which Fox News co-opted as a slogan. And I know this because I've read all of Al Franken's books, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, and his scrutiny in the 90s and the, the turn of this century about what they were actually doing. The projection right now, I've never seen the likes of this form of projection, where your, your government, if they say someone is doing something, 
they're doing it. And Fox saying we're fair and balanced to be in retrospect is a troll. So it's like absolutely. So there's all this trolling and projection constantly. Everything is chicanery <laughs> and absolutely. hijinks, and you're like, what is happening? The media manipulation. Everything is politicized. Everything is polarized. I don't know. You're right. I don't see another way out of this, uh, except for potentially in your country's case, maybe splitting up. Uh, and, and and that's scary too. Like, what do you make of that as someone who lives in America? The notion that maybe maybe the Republicans should have half, and the conservatives should have half, and the and the progressives should have the other. What do you make of that? Do you actually think that is viable? Like, even if that were to occur somehow, mm-hmm. there was a civil war and your country split up. Would those two sides get along? Would you just constantly be at battle? How would that work? Well. I mean, it's it's really tough, right? I, the first thing I want to say is, you know, I've been saying I don't really talk about politics, and and I want to let you know that I actually really appreciate the ability to go off, because, like I said, my biggest platform right now is one where I actually feel a responsibility to make it about the other people. So sometimes I bite my tongue, and sometimes I wonder if that's a good thing. So I appreciate, but you own that too. You own it. Like when I, I was listening to the Orgy Dome episode mm-hmm. uh, recently from your podcast, and and for those who haven't heard it, basically, Chris, you had been bad mouthing the Burning Man Festival. Is this correct? Well, now I wouldn't say bad mouthing, but I'll say I'm a comedian, and there's just so many easy jokes. Fish there. jokes and, in but, a barrel, Burning Man. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my god, yeah. and, and 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 body paint, uh, rolling around naked in a <laughs> desert with body paint. But I've never been, and I actually ha- my I have a lot of people. My wife has actually tapped into an artistic community that really loves it, and she has friends who have been married there. So I know I'm talking shit about a thing that is beautiful, which again actually probably loops back to the old habits of like punk cynicism if it's Some not orthodoxy. my thing then we have to hate it yes exactly you talk about this in the episode um that as a punk for whatever reason we were wired i think it's because some of those early songs were really anti-hippie um yeah uh, deadhead and you know whatever else like but i fundamentally the first music i ever heard was by the beatles as a six-year-old mm-hmm. kid and that's still you can't see them, but like I have way too many Beatles box sets. Like the Beatles are important <laughs> to me, and 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 the the music, uh, like Fugazi to me are the Beatles. Like that I got to see mm-hmm. and experience, and their output mm-hmm. and their cultural impact is just as significant for me. But um, y- yeah, it's it's a weird thing. <laughs> it's funny because it's like we hated the punks, and then you get a little older. You hated the hippies. And you learn your history a little... The hippies, yeah. rather. But it's like... And then you start to realize once you actually get a broader view of the world, you're like, oh, the hippies were the... They were the punks. And then you... And then I sit there and wonder, I'm like, I wonder if the hippies talked shit about the beat generation. Absolutely. Writers. You hate... I, you'd, I wonder if they hated the beats because that's who they were. You, it's a you generational... I, it's a generational separation that leads to, I think, a... A misplaced rage uh, that that's, towards that, towards your own towards the cloth you were cut from. Like it's actually funny. It goes back to when we were saying like a lot of the fans of the Gethard Show started to express this like um, I wouldn't say venom, but just sort of this like bileless building uh, like some bile about the new iterations, and then it got popular. My it, really, when you think it, about it, it, it got popular, and the people who kept it as, who thought it was their little secret. Got a little upset. Uh-huh. Like that 
like Jawbreaker. <laughs> I knew how Jawbreaker felt all of a sudden. But my wife said to me, she put it best on this topic. She goes, who was your favorite band when you were 14 years old? And I go, less than Jake. And she goes, and what were you saying about less than Jake when you were 25 years old? And I go, I was making fun of Scott. <laughs> and they would come up and I'd make fun of them. And she goes, and now you're turning 40. How do you feel about less than Jake? I go, the songs are really fun. And I'm surprised how many of the words I still know. And I will, they'll come up randomly sometimes or I'll put them on sometimes. And I feel the excitement of what it was like to be young. Yeah. They played my friend's backyard on their first tour they ever did in New Jersey. And to feel like I'm excited to learn about something new. So it's, and they're a perfect band. They got bigger. They became, you know, they went from being underground to people would probably say they were mall punk, but it's like, no, now they're still going and they have a ton of respect for any, anyway. I think our brains have this negative bias where you are, we, we can't control it, but you end up projecting hate towards the thing you actually love or are aligned with and it's an identity thing you're sep- like you hate some heroes <laughs> heroes journey there you got to reject the past right? well you less than jake is a part of your identity that you're trying Absolutely. to move past so you say instead of saying i hate myself which is good you say less than jake <laughs> is an avatar of my past which i want to separate myself from so i hate less than jake it's kind of like the Trump's whole thing, or the Trump's whole thing, the Republican Party's whole thing is the Clintons got away with everything. What bastards. Yeah. They got away with everything, and now their whole thing is like, let's see what we can get away with. Those guys got away with it. Yeah. It's really and, weird. And There's just a lot of, like, it, I kind of want to... You probably wanted to be in Less Than Jake, is what I'm getting at, frankly. Oh, you, oh <laughs> and today I must admit that I still would. And we had them on my TV show. Yeah. Uh, all the bands I loved when I was... In my teens and twenties, I, I I went after it, and uh, some to it. it. There's some to it. I, I there is. Yeah, and 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 you know, you'd been asking the political questions, and it is this. It, it does kind of remind me of there's a lot of change in America right now, and a lot of rejecting the past, and then a lot of people who are so protective of their past, and you brought up the Clintons, and and. It's to me. It's like it's so obvious. They're not. They're not participating in a child sex ring. Yeah. But I also know that a lot of my parents' generation, who were proud Democrats, who were so proud of the '60s and their participation in it, really felt heartbroken that he got a blowjob in the White House and lied about it. They and and that's and they're allowed to feel that way. And there's a lot of. I grew up Catholic. Catholics were proud Democrats. But as the Democrats move further and further left, they do feel like, I mean, they feel like abortion is killing a baby. They feel it. Now, do I feel it? No. Do I see how abortion ties into the overall agency of women and the ability for women to, like, Planned Parenthood to me is also saving women from breast cancer and making sure all aspects of women's health are accounted for. Yeah, but we forget that there's no level anymore at which people want to sit down at a table and go, can I find a way to bitterly swallow your hard truth if you're willing to bitterly swallow my hard truth? And 
you know, we are legitimately, you and I are legitimately going, well, I wonder if America's going to separate someday peacefully or if we're going to have to have a it's war. Not, it's, it's not like a joke. I a think, scary I question. Think it's, it's totally feasible. It's at the very least, people are going to get killed. And not only that kid in Wisconsin crossed state lines, killed somebody on the streets, and people actually said, no, he's a yeah. hero. Let's raise money yeah. for him. That's, you're, you're approaching a territory where if that keeps building, at the very least, you will have terrorist groups of all extremist inclinations killing yeah. each other. There's no way that that can't, if we keep validating it, it builds to a thing where you get back to, and, and again, some people view them as as heroes, some people view them as villains, but you get the weather underground, bombings, you get, you know, you get the Michigan militia back. And, and you had mentioned before, oh, they're not militias, terrorist groups. I feel like ever since Timothy McVeigh bombed Oklahoma City, militia is a bad word. Well, yeah, it uh, is. It is. And us. I mean, you know, it, it, it yeah. means terrorist now. And so I don't know if we could separate, but here's what I will say. And a lot of this is rooted. I'm actually part of a, a generation that's very weird because, again, the American studies major in me, is it really does get interested in this stuff. There's Gen X, there's Millennials, and then there's Xennials, which is this little subgroup in the middle. Yeah. You can look this up. Yeah. And they're kind of the people – like I had an older brother who's firmly Gen X. He's two and a half years older than me. He grew up without the internet. I started going on BBS systems when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And by high school, I was there at the birth of the internet when not only was I a teenager who had the internet in my life, but teenagers were actually some of the people figuring it out quickest and defining what it would be. I grew up with that. Like, I, I feel like one of the things is like, Xennials are the people who grew up playing Oregon Trail on an Apple IIe, <laughs> right. who then had, you know, by the time I graduated college, I was on a T1 line. Mm -hmm. My brother wasn't. He had graduated before. You know, it, it's this thing. Yeah. Like, I had, like I said, I remember I remember Apple computers that ran off of cassette tapes. I also know that I had Napster by the end of my experience. I had both. And I think that perspective allows me to see a little bit, especially as someone who grew up pretty, you know, middle class towards the, the lower end of middle class. There are working class people who are very scared because their industries are going away. I look at the coal miners in Pennsylvania and you know, you have one party going, coal can't exist anymore. That's scary. And people go, well, that's a, that's a brutal industry. Why would anyone want to even be a coal miner? And there's a few reasons. A, go watch the documentary Harlan County, USA. Yeah. These are people who fought hard for their dignity and it's rooted in the fact that they went into these mines and they had the corporate stooges literally firing guns at them to try to get them to shut up, literally killing people and they fought hard and it's their identity. And then on top of it, that's one of the jobs where you didn't need a college degree to be able to have a decent house and maybe an above ground pool in the backyard and maybe put your kid through college when you didn't get to there's dignity there that they don't see another they don't see how we're going to get to the other side of this industry it's their dignity it's their dignity um but it's also their heritage like you're exactly. often it's, it's passed down from families my grandfather worked in a coal mine my father worked in a coal mine 
But within that sentiment, I would say, Chris, resistance to change. You're actually violating our heritage, our family traditions are under yes. attack, and that's what they're going for. Even though the second half of we we can't use coal anymore is we're going to create a new industry yes. that is better for the whole uh, the whole planet. And what that the subtext of that is there will be jobs. You're just and, and that's gonna, that's yeah. what the I think that's what the Democratic Party has not and a point that I keep circling around is that my progressive friends are going to hate that I'm going to say this, but and I I I would say that I'm I certainly have friends who are more radical than I am, but I mean I'm a New York City artist. Certainly, I'm deeply into liberal politics, but. The progressives say there's nothing to get excited about with Joe Biden. And I will say maybe it's because of this little micro generation I fall in. Maybe it's because I did grow up a little bit lower middle class. I think there is one thing to get very excited about with Joe Biden, which is I think he's I think he's going to be a bridge that helps the older generation accept this change. I think he is the first politician I've heard who's loudly shouting, hey, guys, like this green energy is going to get us a ton of jobs. And I think Hillary Clinton, one of the fatal mistakes she made was Trump's supporters are deplorables. When you're telling someone, hey, your mining job is going to go away. Hey, your steelworking job is going to go away. And actually, the fact that you're really scared and pissed off actually makes you deplorable. We have to admit at, at the end of the day, it wasn't just a political mistake. It's kind of a mean thing to say to people who are hurting do you, and people who don't know what their kids are going to do because they don't have the option to do what they did. And like you said, their grandparents did. So it's mean. And and I think Joe Biden is probably the first person going, guys, we're going to get you jobs that are safer and that have a longer shelf life and that will survive the next few generations. I never understand why the Democratic Party doesn't go, hey, we're going to pour a ton of money into infrastructure. We're going to build a better rail network that's going to match what Japan and Europe have. And guess who we need to build that rail system is the steel workers and the coal yeah. miners, the people who know how to work that hard. Yeah. We're going to get you jobs that are safer and longer lasting that are still proud union jobs. Not just, hey, your industry's going away. Sorry. Why not? Your industry's going away and there's new industries that have more potential for future generations of your family that are safer for you health-wise and that you can still hold your head up high. One guy who is rumored to run for president who opted not to, who if you read up on him, I'm actually a, a, a very big fan of his, is an Ohio senator named Sherrod Brown. Yeah, yeah. Who yeah, I know Sherrod Brown, yeah. hugely respected in the progressive community, but he keeps winning statewide elections in Ohio, which yeah. is hard for a Democrat to do. Yeah. And the big motto he has kind of coined and, and, and built himself on is the dignity of work. Yeah. So many people right now are, like you, you've been saying since the start, scared and resistant to change. And I think at the root of that in America is there are people who define themselves by dying industries, there are people who find a lot of dignity in where their parents and their grandparents came from. And if you take that away and you don't find a way to impress upon them that 
there will be massive efforts made and and money poured into programs and new industries that will allow you to still hold your head up high. The options aren't you're a steel worker or you're a greeter at Walmart. Uh, Not that that's something that people shouldn't feel dignity in, but that I think the working class views as an unacceptable option that doesn't allow them the same, you know, the same pride that their parents had in fighting for those jobs. Like I said, something that maybe people don't realize in modern day times or from outside America, look into what union workers went through to be who they are and have what they have. It makes sense to me that the fear, their fear has made them flee from a party that used to protect their unions to a party that's now saying your jobs are being stolen by immigrants. No, they're not necessarily. Some of them, you look it up. Actually, there's a great This American Life piece about chicken processing plants in the South. Yeah. It is, it is a thing that's yeah. an issue. But most of these jobs, I don't, think, I don't think they're being stolen by immigrants. I think it's just unrealistic for jobs that kill the environment to exist anymore when we have other means of energy. So. Yeah. Again, I like that you thank you for allowing me to go <laughs> off on it because I don't ever get to and I'm actually a pretty smart guy who thinks about it hard. The working class fled the Democrats because the Democrats didn't let them know they still had their back. Yeah. And the Republican option said, "Hey, we're going to let you be pissed and place the blame on other people, not on yourselves." It's not rocket science yeah. that they that they went that way. Yeah, and there it's a successful strategy and I I I just want to say I thank you for expressing yourself, uh, and I know. So we haven't really talked about your podcast too much. Um, you mentioned the internet and the advent of the internet. You know, you were talking about how your brother didn't have it the way you had it. You've called your podcast "Beautiful Anonymous," and I just uh, I want to home in on the anonymous part because in mm-hmm. the internet world, we're all pretty anonymous. Um, yeah. Even if we put our names to stuff, we're kind of these floating avatars and people think they know you but they don't or you have a fake name you go off on people you you yell at people you leave bad yeah. yelp reviews and your name is something something 69 or whatever you know so were you kind of tapping into that notion of anonymity in our current landscape when you call i know the concept of the show is no judgment no names on some level but is that what you were kind of tapping into like we're all a little anonymous right now well, it's a really great question that I haven't thought much about. Um, because I would actually say that I've rallied pretty hard in my career against venomous commenters. I think a lot of the political problems in America, when it comes down to it, to just pin, the, if I had to pin the blame on one person more than any other in my country, Mark Zuckerberg makes a yeah. ton of money making us all pissed off at each other. Yeah. And it's because we can go on a, a platform where, like you said, you're either semi-anonymous or or you can even make a fake profile and you can go off. You can make, a fake, you you actually, can make a fake personality even. You, it might not, it just might oh, be, you know. You can catfish people. Troll you know? people and, and, and yeah, 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 yeah. But then you see people where it's like, oh, I'll go in some group where nobody knows me. But then you actually see families going, you're my cousin and I never want to speak to you again because you've been saying such awful stuff. And, and you see families ripped apart by Facebook. You see it all the time. Yeah. People go, I'm never going to speak to my aunt or uncle again because they're saying horrific things about you know, uh, 
Elizabeth Warren. You know, some I just read my uncle say the most brutally inappropriate stuff about AOC. It's like, well, this culture encourages us to just go to the extremes, lash out, click, lash click, out. Click, we feel, click. yeah. Everyone then, who feels they're not heard feels heard now. In a sense, they feel like I used to have a thing where if I was upset about something or upset with someone, I would write a draft of an email. Uh, yes. I wouldn't send them the email. I would write <laughs> everything out, and then I would sit on it. And then I would, if I still felt compelled to send it, I would refine it so it was a little less like a journal entry or a diary entry, you know? And I've uh, learned to send... Oh, sorry. Go, go, no, go. no, I was just going to say, but now there's less of that filtration. I feel like people in their relative anonymity from the safety of their homes or their, with their phones, wherever they are, they lash out. They, they put their pain out there and it comes out as rage and... Uh, it's a weird time for that. Like everyone feels like they have, that's what these platforms are for. It's yeah. not just to share a photo of my sandwich or to say, I went to see this show or whatever. It's everything. And I feel like that's weird. It, maybe it was the natural evolution of these things that people would feel like they could lash out with them more than do anything else. Um, and I just want to, if there's one message to be sent about this topic, I would just remind people, there are people making a ton of money off of getting you riled up and pissed off and making you more hateful than you really are. And with Beautiful Anonymous, I would actually argue, and maybe I am, maybe there's a part of me going, oh, there's this culture of anonymity. I can build an idea off it. But I, I would like to actually think that it follows the impulses I've always had of being really against that and, and actually saying... The anonymity here is a protective instinct for the caller, actually to maybe help you avoid that exact thing, where if you say something that's unpopular or something that might be divisive, people don't know how to get to you to ruin your life about it or to give you a bad day about it, or to yell at you about Twitter on it. Because I've endured those things. I've had those things. I've had people say mean things about me on the internet. I've had people flood me with stuff. It stresses you out. It fills you with anxiety. Yeah. So I, 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 I kind of view myself and my job as going, and this is something I've believed about a lot of my work. I certainly believed about the Chris Gethard show, which is like at the end of the day, if anybody gets in trouble for it, or anybody feel stupid about it, it's going to be me. And like with the Gethard show, that took on the form of, there were a lot of young comedians that came on there, and that was their first thing on TV. And it's like, well, if it goes great, you have a fantastic clip. Maybe you can go in a manager or agent. If it goes really shitty, it's called the Chris Gethard show. And the whole premise is, ah, it's this show where everything's <laughs> messed up all the time, and it fails. Yeah. And yeah. So it's like, if it, if it sucks, blame me. And if it rules, go see if you can get somebody to take you seriously yeah, yeah leverage it yeah beautiful anonymous anonymous i think the same thing like if someone hates what's said in an episode they can only find me and it's only on me to take responsibility for it because i created the platform you are safe within the platform if you call my show and i've actually found that because I get to go on the road and sometimes I'll do beautiful anonymous tapings live. Sometimes yeah. I'll do stand up. Yeah. Most of the people who come to my shows at this point are beautiful anonymous fans. And we have a Facebook group for that podcast with 33,000 people. 
And I would actually say that at this point in history, you will not find a Facebook community full of more thoughtful, kinder people who are trying to be fair to each other. And when I meet these people after shows, they are universally kind and they are universal in no other way. I've been, I was initially, as someone whose background was punk and who attracted a lot of kids with green hair and piercings and tattoos in my earlier work, the beautiful anonymous fan base has a big percentage of those people and an even bigger percentage of middle-aged female listeners who, you know, I couldn't figure it out for such a long time. And then I'm realizing, oh, my work has always been for people who feel kind of cast aside or, or unlistened to. And as I've grown up, I'm realizing, oh, the people who I used to know how to speak to as cast aside and unlistened to were punk kids. And then I'm sitting here going, oh, it's actually pretty simple. I can't figure this thing out. And I'm sitting here stressing, oh my God, is my fan base changing? Am I losing my coolness? Is it what's going on? Am I over the hill? Am I done? And then I go, oh no, who feels more cast aside and unlistened to in American society in 2020 than a middle-aged woman? And now you see, and my show started in 2016, four years later, they're saying, who is the most major group that's going to sway this election back towards Democrats? It's suburban middle-aged women. So I'm like, oh, my show was kind of four years ago unknowingly a cultural predictor of like oh yeah middle-aged women like chris gethard now and it's not it turns out it wasn't i certainly had changed in many ways but it wasn't fundamentally rooted in how i changed it was because oh they don't necessarily know that the word punk describes them but yeah right now if you want to describe punk as uh, communities of people who who feel unlistened to getting together and going why are you guys in charge? Why is this the way that it has to work? Actually, we're going to just go ahead and say, nope, that's going to change. And we're going to force it through. That's middle-aged women in America right now. They, I got older and lamer, and then they got way more punk, and we met in the middle in a way that's actually pretty fucking cool. And I think that that anonymity is an effort to say, yeah, you know, if you because the things people call me about are oftentimes so nuts and it's like hey if you want to go out and get out to the world that you've hung out in an orgy dome at Burning Man (laughs) cool nobody you know if you work an office job nobody needs to know your name on that if you want to tell we had a caller in the early days who told me about how her she divorced her husband after he was arrested for hoarding child pornography and she never knew it. Right. Yeah, that's something you might not want to attach your name to, but it might be something you want to process. And it, and so many of the callers to my show, I think, understand that on some level. Like that caller probably helped a lot of people. There's a lot of people who probably went, oh, my spouse did something real creepy that I just found out about. Well, it it seems to me that this is a this this creative platform that you've created here seems like a nice culmination of everything we've been talking about from Letterman, Stern and Punk, this this underlying giving voice to the voiceless. I know that might seem weird to say now about Letterman and Stern, who are aligned with corporate entities with lots of money. 
But what I, resonated Letterman with, in particular, you're dead on the money. Well, Look that's that's the booking Ooh. the booking on that show and the booking on your show was kind of similar. The people you're not going to hear about outside of the fringes, I'm going to give a platform to. And so when you say when you when we invoke the phrase anonymous, on some level a lot of those guests on your show and on those People's shows in the early days in particular were anonymous. They weren't well known. Um, they were making stuff and they weren't being heard. So, all, and now that you are taking calls from strangers, uh, we're at a point where we all agree strangers are very interesting. They're perhaps more fascinating <laughs> than celebrities or people who have all the resources to, to speak. And so, and that's kind of what punk was to me, too. Like, we are going to be, we're opening our ears. We're not going to just pay attention to what we're told to pay attention to. Everyone has a voice, and they're all important in their own way. And I feel like, on some level, your podcast kind of speaks to this impulse within you and this moment and our kind of cultural trajectory where, like, you need, you can, you, not only is it important for you to be heard, you can be. Does that make sense? I think, it, and I think it's kind of for a lot of people vital that you find a way to be heard. I think there's so many people who haven't, and then what you realize is what I hope. What I hope America starts to realize is that just because you haven't been heard doesn't mean that you shouldn't also listen. Yeah. Because the other people who are on the other side of the fence from you probably have at their core instinct of feeling they're not being heard either. And and maybe, as has happened time and time again through human history, we have a lot more in common in the idea that we've never been heard. And the people who are the ones actually that we should all be mad at are the people who manage to make $13 billion a day when a million people a month are filing for unemployment. And maybe yeah. they have a vested interest in all of us being on the other side of the fence, which goes political again. But yeah, well, I, I do think that the podcast boom that we're all kind of a part of, I, I, I like to view it as uh, a new age of listening, because mm -hmm. I know that in the early days of me being a broadcaster or a journalist, and I, I apologize if I've done this too often during our conversation, but in the earliest times of my trying to do this stuff, there would be a lot more interjection a lot more, well, I have a thing to say. So kind of waiting to talk as opposed to listening. And what I've found uh, over, for me now, almost 600 episodes of this particular show is that the thing I'm the proudest of is that I'm trying to be a better listener. Like I have no notes or questions anymore because I don't want to lose the moment. I just want to, whatever I the person's, it. that's what I want. I want to be able to listen and not be taken out of the moment. So all I'm saying is, there must be something to the fact that this this thing we do as a as podcasters or as radio hosts interviewing people i hope is instilling people with better listening habits like there are people like us who do what we do that are still evolving and maybe aren't the best listeners but i would hope that the shows that are rising to the top demonstrate that listening is more important than talking does that make sense it does absolutely and I think it's, I think you're right that podcasts, you know, anytime there's a medium that 
springs to life, there's there's a handful of years where it's before it gets corporatized. And podcasting, we are entering that phase. Yeah, we, we are entering that phase, and it allows for democracy in that real sense. And I think you're right. And I think I think it, it it's it might be sacrilege to some of the old school fans and. But in many ways, I think Beautiful Anonymous is probably, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I would say it's my favorite, but I think it might be the most important thing I've I've done in my in my career because it, it's it's it, it is it is broader in a way that allows for more listening, and I'm really proud of that. And uh, one of the things that gets me the most upset is that my podcasting company puts the bulk of your back catalog behind a paywall. Cause with my show in particular, I try to tell them like, I want this to be a thing where people can go. What were, what were people worried about in February of 2017? Yeah. The timing, Cause the it's context. already kind of different. Yeah. yeah. It's already kind of different than what they're worried about in October of 2020. And I'm proud of that, that you can go listen to it. And you know, I have a, a dear friend of mine who's a musician named Mal Blum, who actually on my first comedy album, we did a song together and one of the things that Mal put out lyrically, I thought was just so simple and so true was everybody's got something. And I think that's probably a more accurate name for Beautiful Anonymous. That's the kind of premise is that everybody's got something. Yeah. And the fan base that has come to stick with the show, which is still almost 100,000 people an episode even after all these years which is so flattering to me and so mind-blowing to me but i think all the listeners are this class of people who like you say are going maybe we got to prioritize listening more than talking and i've had moments that i'm really proud of where a, a few years ago we had our first call from a trans caller and it was something where i took a deep breath and said i might say a lot of things that are wrong yeah yeah but i want you to know i'm trying to learn yeah and i thank you for being one of the people who might teach me and i apologize if i hurt your feelings and the person said that means a lot and then i never forgot we had a listener who showed up in our facebook group who was someone who had contributed a lot and posted a lot and there's you know a name i recognize and if i remember right he was from england which is neither here nor there but he started saying some things that he very clearly didn't realize were transphobic, mm. but he was going, I've never heard someone actually, I've never heard someone from this, from this, you know, background actually say this and this, and this thing's confusing to me. And that thing doesn't make sense to me. And not only was I proud that we kind of shook up his view of that conversation, I was exponentially more proud that a lot of the people in the Facebook group who had a lot more experience even than I did stepped in and, and didn't lash out, didn't shame him, and instead took a breath and said, okay, when you say this, here's why it hurts people. When you express a sentiment like this, here's how it makes people feel scared. When you say this, here's how historically it's the type of thing that gets said that's made people feel like they need to completely hide um, in the shadows mm. because they feel unsafe. And it was a dialogue that I looked at and, and I honestly was reading it going, 
it churned up fear in me. It churned up real confusion in this guy and it churned up a real need for some people in the group to feel like they had to step in and explain. But every step of that process happened successfully. And it's why I'm so proud of Beautiful Anonymous because I really feel like one of the things we've been talking about so much is that that's almost never happening successfully in dialogues in America anymore. And it hasn't for four years where successfully you can go, you're saying some stuff that's really feels wrong to me. Can we get from this point to a point that feels acceptable and positive while managing to never quite go past a point where you feel like you're in a crosshair and I, I'm worried that right now I'm, I'm sounding like one of these people who's going like man screw cancel culture because I'm not I mean it, it, it certainly has it's a pendulum swing that has gone you know especially with like the Me Too movement it's like well for hundreds of years women have had no voice so yeah that pendulum's going to swing really hard in a direction if people are mm-hmm. rapists I don't have a problem with that yeah. I'm not trying to sound like I'm using that phrase, but what I am saying is that I hope that that pendulum, as it stops swinging so far from one end to the other, does land in a place where you can go, can you say something I don't like? But maybe we can say it while we're breaking bread together at a table. And by the end of that meal we have either found a way to enlighten one another a little bit, find some understanding, or we can get up and say, hey, I'll pay the check, let's walk away, you and I should never have a meal together again because we fundamentally disagree and I can't respect I can't respect the extreme you live on. To me, that feels like a place that at the very least isn't going to lead to governors getting kidnapped. You know, (laughs) like I'm not trying to tell my liberal progressive friends that we need to chill out. What I am saying is that there's no world in which extremism should hit a point where people are dying in the streets and getting kidnapped. And maybe those of us who, in my opinion, are on the side of things that are the more enlightened need to extend that enlightenment towards welcoming people back in if those people have the have it within them the people who don't the punk rocker in me is very happy to say fuck off like yeah, yeah. bob mold just put out that song you're either right you're either one of us or one of them if you're one of them never talk to me again absolutely hmm. but is there a chance you're not one of them is there a chance that i can be the person who talks to you and makes you realize maybe some of the fear some of that anger can go Maybe we do have a little bit in common. Maybe that middle ground is there. Maybe you're not one of them. Well, if you're not one of them, welcome back. Yeah. And if you are one of them, stay out of my life. But I do think that there is an opportunity for people to find, right? And it's one of the things I think about with Beautiful Anonymous. I get callers who call up and say stuff I really don't like. 
well, is there a way for me? You know, one of the only two rules of the show, you stay anonymous and I can't hang up the phone. So it's yeah. like, you're not going to be judged. And I also have to sit here and deal with it for an hour. Yeah. So is this hour going to be screaming and yelling? It's unlistenable and it's unenjoyable conversationally. Yeah. By the end, can I figure out a way to tell you why I really don't like what you're saying? Get it on record. Maybe have you consider it. And maybe then if I really think I'm the enlightened one, you might go, you know what? There's parts of this I'm seeing where you're right. And maybe on my days when I have, you know, when, when my ego gets out of the way, maybe me going, okay, I, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like how you're living, but I do see the pain that got you there. Yeah. Okay. At that point, we're giving each other something. And I just... uh kind of desperately look for any medium that that promotes that right now and again even though he's not an exciting dude even though he is someone who seems like he you know can't finish a sentence i will say i find myself genuinely excited when biden says i want I used to be able to sit down with Republican senators. Why can't we anymore? I used to be able to go to that weird congressional gym and get on a treadmill next to John McCain and we hated each other's policies, but we were able to sit down. We were able to work out with each other and talk. I think that is an exciting thing. And I feel bad that a lot of my progressive friends are going to roll their eyes at that if they hear me say this, but it's exciting to me, the idea of dialogue. It really is. And Beautiful Anonymous, that's all it is. It's a podcast that's just, it just straight up is dialogue. It's yeah. an unedited phone call. That's all it is. So, well, I don't know. You've homed in on Beautiful Anonymous as one of your proudest achievements. But um, as a fan of yours, and I'm sure uh, the sentiment is shared, I mean, I think uh, your penchant for being a conversation starter, whether it's career suicide or your stand up, um, it's just really appreciated, Chris, and, and it's to be commended. And so I thank you for the work you do and have done. And I hope you, re- I gather based on how it's resonating, you you recognize that other people find it significant as well. Um, to wrap up, I'm curious if you can talk about what's going on for you, what's coming up next. Uh, you've got your podcast. I saw miraculously you've been doing some live shows traveling a little bit here and there which is uh, uh amazing to see in this time uh, that you're able feels to do that good. all outdoor uh, all, all outdoor. outdoor yeah 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 all safe yeah. distance and it feels <laughs> cathartic for everyone yeah. there myself most of all yeah so what um, else is going on what are you working on well first let me just say thank you for your kind words it means a lot you're welcome as far, as far as what I'm working on next, welcome to the existential uh, yeah. panic of my life the past two years. The Gethard Show was my was my thing. It was a it was not only a creative project named after me. It really was, I think, an actual accurate artistic representation of who I have felt like for most of my life and now it's canceled mm-hmm. and uh, I have 
I was always really good about like, all right, I'm working on the Gethard show and then I'm quietly working on a book and then I'm working on this one man show about my depression and then, oh, I'm going to start this podcast. And I, I have the least idea of what's next. Oh. And that's been terrifying. And at times has led to a lot of angst and, and fear, especially as someone who had my first child 18 months ago. Oh, that's right. Uh, Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And congrats on your two kids. Yeah, How they're good. They? They're uh, nine and five, almost six. Yeah, Levon and Ramona. Yeah, they're good. We're all we're doing virtual school and we just moved to a new place in January. We moved from Ontario Oof. to Alberta. Uh, so the isolation had already begun uh, and then yeah. everything started. So they but they did go to school for a while, for a few months from uh, January to March and so they were at birthday parties and they made fast friends and it was all going well. That's good. Yeah, but now it's we're all stuck in our house for the most part and uh, Edmonton per capita is doing where I live is not it's almost as bad as Toronto which has like I don't know 10 times the population or something I'm just going off the top of my head. So yeah, it's weird. Weird times. The infection rate yeah. is high and we're pretty uh, isolated here. But as I say, we were kind of in training uh, prior to March because it was so cold here as well. Um, but no, they're good. My wife is, we're good. We're doing all right. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Good. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. That's all tense and stressful. I will say I'm slightly jealous to hear that you landed in Alberta, historically the home of some of the best pro wrestling. <laughs> That's right. Earth. Not too far from the Hart family. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Look I, at that. The dungeon. Stu Hart used to stretch <laughs> right. him out up there. That's man. right. Chris Jericho got to start up there. Bad News Brown, Dynamite Kid, a lot of great stuff. It does feel like a wrestling place, I will say. When I go to the grocery store and people giving me the side eye about having my mask and my mitts, they're toughen up, buddy. Like, I can't. Although that also could be racism. I always forget that I'm a person of color and that the stairs are, they could be both. I'm not sure. They probably are both right now. But yeah, no, it's an interesting place. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to Alberta? I have not been to Alberta. Um, I've, you know, I've been to the places that American comedians go, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and, and uh, the surrounding areas. So you would love, it's uh, funny though, there's I, an arts and comedy and music festival in Calgary called Sled Island. Uh, Slet, I yeah, I, I try to get booked. You on should it. try to do that. I the first year I, I've only attended once. It was 2012, and I ostensibly came to see the band Hot Snakes play their one of their first shows. Mm -hmm. But like uh, the comedy programming was like Tim Heidecker and uh, Greg Turkington and Natasha Legero and uh, yeah, so they bring some of the weirdos up. Todd Barry, yeah, like it was really fun, and uh, I wasn't expecting it. They played this tiny little place. So yeah, you should totally if it ever comes back, you I would Sled Island. It's a funny name, but you should you would you would love it. It's often curated. The year, that year Archers of Loaf played and Thurston Moore played and I met Lou Barlow wow. for the first time, I think. That was the first time and then we became friends and yeah, so it's it's cool. I, it's not a bad place. Sounds sounds like a place I should be. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. Sorry uh, to interject there. No, no worries. As yeah. far as what's next, I've been very nervous about it. I have a kid. I moved to the suburbs. I've had to just find ways to take a deep breath and realize nobody's as cool at 40 as they were at 28, 29 when I started the Get There Show. That there's younger comedians now getting the press I used to get. And that that's not only okay, but exciting. And that they probably have a lot more to say now than I do. And that when the Gethard show was around, it, 
it had a reputation for feeling very progressive and exciting. And it was me and three other white dudes who wrote all the public access things. Cable, I mentioned, I'm very, very proud that I exploded that. Um, so that there's stuff that needs to be said now by other people, and I don't really have the the knowledge or right to say it. So all that's been hard. But I tell you, just in the past couple of months, I went and did a thing that I think you'd actually be really into, where I turned 40 this year, and I started comedy when I was 20. And I took cameras on the road with me, and I played 10 different cities, 10 different small venues, and made like a stand-up special. But that in my mind... I want it to be a lot more specifically like a documentary. I loved as a kid, Another State of Mind. If you ever saw yeah, that yeah, one, yeah. Youth Brigade and Social Distortion, yeah, yeah, yeah. Minor Threat shows up. Yeah. That, I watched that tape about 150 times in high school. I was like, I want to make my version of that. And some of it was DIY spaces. Some of it was small independent theaters. Only a few like promoter-based gigs in there. And I just found out on Friday, I just had a phone call with someone who's actually into distributing it. And I self-funded the whole thing, which was a big risk having a, you know, my kid was five months old when I decided to commit way too much money to it. But I just wanted to bet on myself again for the first time in a couple of years. So that's going to be coming out. And I'm really excited. Nice. That's great. Yeah. And then I've been thinking more and more about, and it's a word that I think everybody's going to roll their eyes at because it's everybody's making them now, especially during the pandemic when we can't go on the road. But we were talking about how podcasting was this kind of wild west and it is starting to corporatize a little bit. Um, But one platform that I've actually come to really think has good intentions and I'll research that more is Patreon. Yeah. As far as letting artists define who they want to be and what they want to do. So I'm, I don't know if it'll even wind up on a Patreon, but it's, I'm like, if I had one, what would it be? Oh, I'd do this idea and that idea and this and that idea. And, and I'm happy to say that for the first time since the cancellation of the Gethard show, because Career Suicide was done, Beautiful Anonymous pre-existed the death of the Gethard show. For the first time in a couple of years, I'm feeling myself going, oh, I'm excited about potential ideas again right now. So this special will be coming out at some point next year. I haven't spoken about that publicly anywhere. You got the scoop, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's good yeah. to know. Does it have a and name? I think it's going to be called Half My Life. Half My Life. It's called okay. the Half-Life Tour, and I was going to name it that, but I felt like putting tour in the title of a thing is just a little on the nose, and I feel like Half My Life sounds like a title of a thing a little. Maybe that's yeah, just OCD. No, I agree. So I think it's going to be called Half My Life, and... We play two of the venues that we played in it have sadly shut down due to COVID. There's mm. a huge issue right now with independent stages. Oh, the, in the States, same here. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, in the States, a lot of the independent venues are teaming up trying to get federal legislation passed. I hope it happens. So I'm proud to show off some venues that were near and dear to me that, that don't exist anymore and like have a record of them. And then, yeah, whether it winds up being Patreon or something else, I'm like, I'm feeling that sort of like healthy version of of some manic feelings that are making me want to go out and create some stuff. And I'll tell you what ties back and loops around a lot of our conversation. And sorry, I talk so much. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) As an artist during COVID, I've realized that there are very few silver linings. One of them is that every artist who's been around for a while 
there's never going to be an opportunity like this to push the reset button on whatever you want to. We're all off the road for who knows how long. Well, when you go back on the road, there's a lot of things you can decide change. So as I got bigger, my agents started going out and trying to get bigger venues and started trying to go out and get more money. And I allowed that to happen. I had a kid. But now I'm sitting here going, what if I never play a show over a certain amount of money? What if when I go to a town, I go, look, I'm going to have a publicly stated policy of I have a kid, so I need to do gigs. But if I can play an independent space versus I certainly don't ever want to deal with Live Nation and Ticketmaster yeah. and all those places as little as possible. So I am also starting to think about kind of the ethics and redefinition I have an opportunity at here. And maybe it's time to sort of intentionally scale some things back to kind of get back to a place that matches a little bit more of what I've always wanted to now obviously part of that is that I'm two years out from the TV show there's less hype so it's easy for me to be like I want to get back to the Ian Mackay side of it man because it's also like yeah but you don't have a TV show anymore so people aren't looking to give you as much money as either it's easy but it is a choice when I'm going independent stages can I play all ages shows if I can make a little less money for an all ages show in your town I'll do that 18 plus is the next best. If it has to be 21 plus, I'll do it if there's no other option. But I'm starting to think about all those things again. And one name that hasn't come up, a guy who's a pretty dear friend of mine, who I think is kind of maybe the modern version of Ian, is Jeff Rosenstock, who if you're familiar with his work, he's really shown me that you can kind of be someone in the underground who doesn't need to keep constantly expanding financially at, while while trading in the right way to do it. And I think I lost sight of that a little bit too much and I think it's a uh, time to get back to it. Well, that is all heartening and cool. That's great. It's great to hear you've got plans. Uh, it's hard to make plans during a pandemic and uh yeah, it I, sucks. I, <laughs> I do appreciate that a lot of people I'm still talking to made stuff before the pandemic and it's just coming out now and I I hope that that can, continu- can continue that people can keep making stuff or keep coming up with ideas this suspension has given us a lot of time to reflect and come up with ideas so hopefully at the other end of this there's going to be this boom this sort of I don't want to say cultural renaissance or what have you but like yeah I hope we're going to see this flood of creative output at the end potentially yeah. that would be and people are going to want to party yes like the people who clamoring. like art and comedy and music are going to want to party so we have a chance that really is like something i'm trying to stress to friends of mine right now it's like you get to redefine yourself however you want yeah you get to hit the ground running with an audience that maybe more than any other time in our lifetimes or at least since like the cbgb's explosion will be craving cool shit yeah so let's go for it. And again, for we're it. wrapping up. I want to apologize. I talk so much. No, feeling, no, no. So don't, don't, don't feel bad. Always, Why would you feel always. bad? Because I grew up Catholic and that's what we do. Two podcast hosts are going to ramble. That's just the way it's going to work. I think that's I just know. the way it is. I mean, you have things to say. I thought it was a nice conversation. And I, I, did too. I Good, good. Now, Chris, if you, just to get some plugs out of the way before we say goodbye, if you could direct people uh, to learn more about you, uh, using their internet, where mm-hmm. would you where would you like to send them? Well, I, the main thing I would ask of people is check out Beautiful Anonymous 
And if you like it, please subscribe or follow or whatever your platform allows because you can speak to it. It, it I, I wonder if you'd agree as a podcast. It really goes a long way right now to help podcasts survive because people are in their cars less, people are home dealing with their kids more. So the numbers are all going down, which means that the people who actively subscribe, it's a simple thing you can do where not just my podcast, any podcast you love, including this one, yeah. it helps right now. So check that out. Yeah. And then I'm- I, I do stress, I stress that a little bit. I've tried to stop stressing it as much because I realized that stressing it was stressing me out. Of course, yeah. Uh, like I'll just clamoring for people to, I'm like, you know, I do my best and Same. I like my guests and my guests are cool and- I, you know, it's still a tiny little thing in Canada, but at the same time, it seems to have some resonance. Let it do its thing. And, and, but I do say like, please follow, subscribe. I say those, we all say those things, but we, you know, and we always <laughs> cast them off. They're always throwaway lines at the end. So on yeah. your behalf, yeah. I will say, since you, since you are very humble and don't want to shout it to the little tops, I can just say, if you're a podcast fan, um, it helps right now. Cause just by the way, people are living getting less clicks and that means that the corporate suits and all the gross advertising stuff all that stuff the artists just have less leverage yeah. so it helps yeah. and then you know I'm on the Instagram and Twitter and I mentioned Facebook all those all those places I'm out there and chrisgeth.com your website's your, yeah what, what is your website it's again? chrisgeth.com G-E-T-H that's where I put up my live dates I would love to come back to Canada soon I don't have chrisgether.com yeah. because someone's been cyber squatting on it for 10 years and I've had a oh my God. very hilarious series of email <laughs> exchanges with them. This anonymous person where they will tell me we will give you this domain for $6,000 and I'll come back and go, my counter offer is $7. And then they'll go, this is ridiculous. And I'll go, well, you have all the supply, but literally I have all the demand. So this is, we got each other by the balls, buddy. And then 18 months later, I'll reach out again and go, I've reconsidered it. I have a new offer and they'll go, how much? And I'll go, $14. And then they get mad at me again. And so it's chrisgeth.com is the point. I don't have Chris Gethard because some some jerks stole it out from under me. Let me not trump you per se, but there's a, a some sort of, in the last year and a half, some sort of TV show has emerged in India and the lead character, or one of the lead characters is a woman mm-hmm. who is some kind of vixen or villain. I don't know what's going on, but her name is Vishkana. Wow. They named her my name, which is like, it's a common name. Vishal Khanna is a common name. It's like yeah. Bill Smith in India on some level. But uh-huh. for some reason, this woman, this beautiful, evil woman is named Vishkana. And so every two weeks I get Snapchat. Like, I don't, I forgot I made a Snapchat. <laughs> And there's like someone is logging into your Snapchat in India, and it's like every two weeks they they think that it's her, yeah, or that she's real. And there's and like yeah. I can't Google myself anymore, which is fine. I don't need to do that. Better off. It's always this woman because India is very populous uh-huh. and people uh-huh. like the show. Uh-huh. So now I I must be getting podcast followers thinking them thinking that I'm her. It's great. So, so say hi to India. You're telling me right now there's like a, a portion of a nation that I believe has like a billion people close to it. Yes, at least. No, more. More, more than, than a that. Billion we surpassed people it. They surpassed it, yeah. Who tuned into this thinking maybe they could hear the words of a, of a, of a beautiful temptress villain who are like, why, why, is, why is this man talking to a white comedian from America about something called Adam and his package? It's so strange. Yeah, it's weird. And so all this to say like, I 
I had vishkana.com. I had all the things, but as I as TikTok emerged, I went to I like I should just get it in case I do want to use it. Sometimes I have that mindset. Someone had it. And, but they used my email. Like it's all very identity theft confusing and yes. then I was able to take it over, but people are using vishkana more than they ever have. So to your point, I know what you're going through in a weird way, but luckily I mostly have everything. So I love that <laughs> Love it, Chris. This was uh, really fun, and you shouldn't feel self conscious about talking so much. I, I'm a huge fan of yours, and I enjoyed this very much. And I hope you did too. And I wish you the best I luck did. in the future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your kindness, and thanks for not asking the same five questions I usually get. It was really, really enjoyable. All right, I did it. Finally got Chris Gethard on the show. I've been trying for many years, and I'm glad we, we finally... I feel like we made up for all that time with this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, thank you to Chris Gethard for appearing on this, the 575th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all Apple and Google platforms and wherever else you get your podcasts. It's on Spotify. Stitcher, all those things. It's everywhere you want to be. If you can't find an episode you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com, which is spelled exactly how it sounds. Also, you can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me directly at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation keep this podcast going you heard chris and i talking about patreon a little bit or he was well i've had a patreon for some time it's a a modest affair but it's a very generous of everyone for everyone who, who donates and if you if you actually pledge six dollars or more a month you uh, gain access to uh, my archive of interviews things from my past before this podcast that i still have on tape or recorded digitally and i dig them up sometimes and i share them uh, and uh, this is, as I'm speaking to you, it's October 2020. It has been a busy month for the actual podcast uh, in that instead of four episodes, I think there's going to be nine. Nine. I try to do one a week, but it's been difficult lately. I've been trying to keep up with all the requests and some great guests have been coming through. So I put out more than I two a week and then weirdly one week had three. So... Anyway, all this to say, I haven't been hitting the archives as hard as I will starting next month. So hopefully you can bear with me on that. And you feel satiated by the extra content on the regular podcast feed. All this to say, I'm doing my best and would appreciate your support. Thanks to all of you who do support me uh, on Patreon. Patreon.com slash creative control. Thanks again to live at MasseyHall.com where you can, act, you can watch beautifully captured concerts by great Canadian artists. Uh, they do the, the good work there live at MasseyHall.com also thanks to Pizza Trocadero The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton for their in-kind support for this show uh, thanks as always to my dear pal Jim Guthrie for loaning me some music for the program and that is pretty much it oh you thank you thank you for listening to this episode with Chris and for potentially recommending the podcast to your friends I see those threads Sometimes on the media, the social media, like, hey, can anybody recommend a good podcast? And I wistfully look at it and I'm like, oh, didn't, 
uh, somehow. Why? Anyway, I don't mean to sound thirsty here, but if you can, I am actually physically thirsty. I need a drink. If you can recommend the show to your friends or subscribe to it and keep up with it, that would be great. But if not, carry on. You're doing well, I hope. And I will talk to you soon, I hope. Bye for now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.